Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. All right, today it's part two. We're continuing our discussion from last time. And without any delay, let's get right into today's content. So some of the other things that we haven't covered yet in the interview with the patients would be probably the social history would come after this. I think the next would be the past psychiatric history. Oh, past, so yeah. what I'm really looking for as a prescriber is I'm looking at what's worked in the past, what hasn't worked, which medications, what have the side effects of the medications been? And how long have they used each of the medications? Mm-hmm. And did they actually use it as prescribed or did they, were they missing a lot of doses? You know, unfortunately, with something like schizophrenia, the compliance rate is like really bad coming out of a psychiatric hospital. It can be like 30%. So, just because they failed a medication, like did they adequately actually take it? Like SSRIs are classic, right? So, someone comes in with anxiety, they get prescribed an SSRI, they take it for two weeks, it causes worsening anxiety, so they stop it. And it's like, yeah. SSRIs will increase your anxiety and it may take six weeks for it to come down. Mm -hmm. Usually six weeks is like the amount of time that it really kicks in. So, I want to know which meds they've tried, how long. And this may be actually, you'll be talking about the patient, you'll present them and then they'll be like, okay, let's try them on this med and this med. And and then at that point, if you've gotten a good medication history, you can be like, you know, they've tried olanzapine and it costs 70 pounds of weight gain and they don't ever want to go back on that. And you're like, oh, okay, well, let's try this med. And you'd be like, uh, let's try Risperdal. Okay. Then you can say, well, you know, Dr. So-and-so, they've tried Risperidone in the past and it caused gynecomastia and they almost sued their last psychiatrist over it. It's like, okay, let's not try that one. Let's try, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, it's like really knowing which meds they've tried and the side effects and how long they took it can be really helpful in actually developing a plan. Mm-hmm. Other things with the past psychiatric history to note are like, past experiences with psychiatrists and therapists. And I always want to ask them like, hey, what was it like? Did that therapist help you? Did that psychiatrist help you? What what are things you like? What are things you not like? And it really will show you some of their attachment. Like Mm -hmm. if they're critical of all people that they've ever worked with, okay, it might be difficult to not have them be critical of you by the end. So, what were the things that bothered them the most? How do we prevent those things from reoccurring, Mm -hmm. you know? And then family history, you know, we know that there's... um, genetic linkages between disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar and ADHD and substance use disorders, suicide, substance use less so, mm-hmm. you know, than s- some of the other ones. There's a bipolar is, is pretty strongly genetic linked, schizophrenia is, and then um, it goes down somewhat for some of the other mm-hmm. stuff. But, you know, understanding what they come, where they come from and their, their risks there will kind of help you understand like what you're, what you're dealing mm-hmm. with. It's very different if you're dealing with someone who's like both parents are extremely depressed and ended up doing ECT. That's that's a different picture. That's a different patient than someone who has no family history of psychiatric illness. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you normally include like legal history more in the psychiatric or social side of things, but I know that's something that I've been asked about before. If, if I ask the patient whether they have any pending charges or um, have ever been incarcerated or if, you know, they're currently being, you know, sought after, uh, that, that can help as well if there's some sort of delusion or persecutory delusion or, or feeling that they're being followed to parts out whether or not these are real suspicions or not. Yeah. Well, that, that's a good point. Because like patient says, like, I feel like people are after me. They want to kill me. It's like, okay, what do you do for work? I sell drugs. Okay. People might want to be after right. you and want to kill right. you, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. So, in social history, you know, I want to know, you know, do they currently have relationships that are meaningful? Mm-hmm. 
you know, what is their significant other relationship like? Do they have close friends? Have they had multiple failed close friendships? You know, like, is it, are their friendships more volatile or are they more steady over Mm -hmm. time? What's their work history like? Do they have meaningful work? Do they find value and meaning in what they Mm do? You know, of course, things like spiritual beliefs are very important to people, a lot more important to some people than others. So I want to know, you know, what, what are your spiritual beliefs? Do you have a support system? Do you attend a community? And what is that community like? I want to know about their interests, things that they enjoy, their military background, if they have any abuse, sexual, physical, neglect. Do they have a history of domestic violence, legal issues? Yeah, so that's all in the social history. And then developmental history, you know, like what, what was their early life like? You know, were, were parents using drugs or alcohol in the home? Were, were they in the foster care system? Were they adopted? And, you know, you, you're taking everything you hear and you're kind of thinking about it in the context of their diagnosis as well. So they have a, if they have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, I remember this one guy. This was another early mistake I made. He had a diagnosis of schizophrenia, and he said his parents tortured him and kept him up for three days straight, and his friends tortured him with him. And there was part of me that like wanted to believe him, you know. And then I got some collateral from the parents, and they're like, "I don't know what he's talking about," you know. And his parents seem so normal. And as time went on, I just realized, "Oh my god, this guy has like some really pr- strong persecutory delusions," mm-hmm. and he started to think that I was a part of it as well, like, and I was going to torture him and keep him mm-hmm. there, you know. And so, understanding the context of not everything that you hear may be true, but it may kind of help you get the big picture of what's going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Anything else from social history that you usually ask or you've been asked to ask? I guess there, there's been some things that maybe we would touch upon in the HPI that you might have sort of mentioned before of just, it, it can be helpful in the social history to get a picture of how have they, you know, been able to function in the past. And I think you touched on that with talking about, you know, their past work that they've done. But getting a feel for, you know, is this something that has impeded their ability to function normally in school growing up and with work later on? Or were they somebody that is, you know, a high school or college graduate? And uh, were they able to climb up in the uh, sort of organizational structure of wherever they've been working and then all of a sudden it collapsed? And so the social history can present some good opportunities to sort of flesh that out. Yeah. And some of this stuff, you know, as a, as a medical student, you have the time to call mm-hmm. for collateral. So, if you have an extremely manic or extremely psychotic patient, getting the consent from the patient and then calling and getting some good collateral is mm-hmm. so helpful. So helpful. And it's a good experience. It's a good experience to see the patient and then get the collateral and go through the social history, the developmental history, get the time course on when symptoms started, what started first, what happened next, what happened next. And make like a timeline, make it make mm-hmm. sense in your own mind and then kind of piece the the puzzle together and, and create a good diagnosis. Yeah. And if you plan. can do that as a medical student, it can feel really sort of overwhelming and, and maybe that you're not, you know, the, the right person to do that or something. But it really does, uh, it's, it's something that's good to practice to call and inter- you can introduce yourself as, as a member of the team and get the story, take as good of notes as you can. And, um, and you know, to be able to present that, that saves your team, the resident or the attending a lot of their own time. And it can really, you know, be helpful in clarifying the, the patient's picture. And we don't need that mm-hmm. from every patient, right. you know, but there's that occasional patient when you're in a team meeting and you can tell like, there's still like debate about the diagnosis. There's still debate on what's really happened. How did this person get here? That's where I think jumping in and then taking the sort of time to make that call mm-hmm. to get that collateral is so, so important. And, it, you know, you do have more time as a medical student. You have less patients 
And so doing that and being proactive, you know, and really trying to advocate for your patient too. So like, what is the best Mm -hmm. thing for this patient? We want people to be advocates for their patients and get Mm -hmm. the best treatment possible. And the other thing that is really, really helpful as we move sort of it more into the the plan is what is the discharge Mm -hmm. plan for this patient? And you might touch base with a social worker, like, Hey, what is the discharge plan for this type of patient? Like what happens? Um, or, you know, touch base with the resident, like, Hey, like, what are the options? You know, is there a date, mm-hmm. date treatment program? Like the best, the best plan is to get them into a, like mm-hmm. a partial program right after discharge. And so if there's a partial program in your area, finding out what that partial program is, how that works, partial programs are like, day treatment programs. They don't live there. They live maybe in a sober living or they live at home and then they come to this partial program eight hours a day. There's lots of cognitive behavioral therapy. There's lots of group therapy and stuff like that. And it really does help patients transition out Mm -hmm. of mental illness. So, Mm -hmm. I'll always look at vitals. You may catch things that the resident Mm -hmm. doesn't catch it. You know, are their vitals high? If they're detoxing, that can be important. What is their mental status? So, when you describe a mental status, think about like, Okay, if I were to describe this person and you were just to pick them out of a lineup based on this mental status, mm-hmm. that's a good mental status. And so, of course, we have copy and paste mental status examinations, but really go through each one and change it based on your experience of the patient. So, if the patient's talking slow, put that down under speech. If their thought content is full of suicidal thoughts, put that down and put down what mm-hmm. their suicidal thoughts are. So, really try to describe how you visualize the patient. Mm -hmm. This is your history. And this is actually counted as a history Mm -hmm. for a medical examination. So it's very important to put this down. For intellectual function, I don't know if I would write down low IQ if they had low IQ, but it's good to note Mm -hmm. it in your head. Um, How do you judge IQ? A lot of it's based on the complexity of how they put words together, how they talk, vocabulary, their ability to problem solve. And IQ can be one of those things that like it's unchangeable or largely rigid, it is changeable if you get early access to kids as they're growing up. The environment does make an impact. But it's something that I assess on each patient and then kind of understand in terms mm-hmm. of what their jobs were. If they had ADHD, were they able to achieve the full benefit of their IQ? Usually not if they had mm-hmm. severe ADHD. So I have a bunch of medical students I've treated that like once they get put on treatment for their ADHD, all of a sudden their grades go from like C's mm-hmm. to A's overnight. That's the mental status. And then pertinent labs, you know, we always want to look at a urine drug screen. We order that on every new inpatient thyroid, complete metabolic panel. We're looking for abnormalities of their LFTs or any other disease that might be there that Mm -hmm. might be influencing things. And then radiology, you know, think, do I need to order a scan of this person's brain? If it's a first episode of psychosis in someone who you wouldn't expect to have psychosis, could there be something else? And do Mm -hmm. they have other symptoms, you know? In a neurological, and don't be afraid to do a quick little neurological examination. Check out the strength of both of their grips. Have them move their eyes around. Have them make a big smile. Have them move their tongue around. Have them, you know, check the strength on their, their mm-hmm. ankle on both sides. Check their sensation. Because sometimes, you know, we are seeing some weird brain mass or something going on in the brain that's mm-hmm. causing some of their symptoms. Yeah. And certainly if you suspect that that they're abusing alcohol, for instance, you can check for things like asterixis, sticking out your hands and acting like you're stopping traffic. Uh, you may see some flapping of the hands with emotion like that. 
And then, like you were saying, if there may be some sort of injury in the brain, if they had a recent fall, uh, it's something to, to definitely check about of any recent head injuries. And, and oftentimes, if there's a large enough head injury, then we may need to order like a non-contrast CT of the head or something like that to rule out some sort of damage to the brain. Yeah. And uh, seizure, you know, like is what's happening a seizure? Mm -hmm. So I think we're first doctors and then psychiatrists. So some people say mm -hmm. like, oh, I don't want to go into psychiatry because I'm going to lose all of my medicine. It's like, no, you need to know all of that. Mm -hmm. Every single medication, how it affects the mood. You need to know all of the different diagnostic things and how, you know, every single medical issue can cause delirium, you know? So is this a delirium that I'm seeing or is this a psychosis? Mm -hmm. Those are, are sometimes difficult to tease out. Yeah. One small thing I wanted to touch upon in the, uh, when you're talking about vitals, that being familiar with the different signs of withdrawal from different substances can be hugely important in your psych clerkship. And like you already mentioned, if somebody's withdrawing from alcohol, you may notice that they may be hypertensive, they may be tachycardic. And then if somebody's experiencing diarrhea or they're very sweaty, you may be thinking about opioid withdrawal. Additionally, I think you, you sort of mentioned before with methamphetamine use, if somebody's super sleepy and, and almost difficult to arouse from their slumber, it could be that they're withdrawing from methamphetamine or, or cocaine use as well. So those are some things to be familiar of when you're doing your exam. If they're withdrawing from meth, they may be incredibly irritable too. And well, so yeah. that would be the one case where I would say you might want to cut that interview short right. or do the interview in small pieces or wait. Mm -hmm. a, a methamphetamine withdrawal, it's like you, you're not going to get an hour with that person. You're just not. And that's another important small point is never being afraid, you know, to step away, to cut an interview short if you're ever feeling uncomfortable or unsafe. Usually there's some sort of way that you can have security accompany you trying to stand somewhat close to the door or, you know, some way where you'd have an easy escape. Those are all important safety things to keep in mind when you're on your clerkship as well. Yeah. And if someone is escalating, mm -hmm. they're, you know, getting angry or hostile, what are their goals? State back to them what their goals are. And then tell them what you want and then repeat that process 12 times. Mm -hmm. If they continue to escalate, cut the interview short, get out of there. But if, they, if they're agitated, in general, to decrease someone's agitation, listen, empathize, tell them what you want. And then tell them what you want. Maybe like, hey, can you come sit down over here so we can talk some more? Right. Usually people don't repeat this 12 times, but really if you want to deescalate a person, it takes about sometimes 12 times to do that cycle. Mm -hmm. So that would be another pearl. Yeah. And one other sort of random thing from before that I meant to touch on is an important thing we were asking about substance use that I've been practicing lately is we get in the habit of asking, do you use drugs? Do you use, you know, opioids? Do you, you, do you drink alcohol? And instead, if you can change that to how many, you'll, you'll find that your responses are quite different. If you say, you know, how many drinks do you have every day or, or what drugs do you use? Just reframing it like that, you might get a little bit more of um, honest answers. Yeah. Like with uh, meth, I'll sometimes say, how many grams a day do you use? And they'll be like, oh, lately like two grams, but I usually use half a gram. So, okay. Mm -hmm. So, you were using like half a gram for how long? Like, oh, several months. Oh, and then just the last week you increased it to two grams. And they're like, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. that's what's going on. Whereas if you just ask, do you use meth? It's very easy to be like, no. And you might not get the, the full picture. Right. Or um, for adolescents, you know, one of the questions is, do you have any friends that use any drugs? So that may be a first question into their own substance use. Have you ever been in a car when one of your friends has used any drugs? And they found that those questions are more predictive 
And then to also talk about confidentiality sometimes is important. Like, hey, you know, I just need to know this just to know how to best treat you. And this, this is confidential information. Now, mm-hmm. with, some, yeah. with some kids, it's like because it puts them at risk for death, you may want to disclose that to their parents. But that's something you should probably have a conversation with your resident or attending about how they approach that. Mm -hmm. And asking about what their friends are doing in adolescence is somewhat similar to uh, normalizing, which you may learn about as a medical student of of just for your statements, beginning them with, I ask these questions to everyone or or with an adolescent say, you know, I I see a lot of uh, patients or kids that are your age. And one thing that I see often is that kids around this age are smoking pot. How many of your friends or, or do you know of friends that are smoking pot? And kind of normalizing it and talking about other people first can kind of ease the way into then asking about whether or not they are, are using uh, pot or other substances as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. All right. Well, I think the final thing is like diagnosis and treatment. We've talked a bit, a little bit about this stuff, but I would mm-hmm. say as kind of a final, a final thing, I would say put down your best guess, you know, as a medical student, put down your best guess of what you think is going on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then kind of try to defend it, but, you know, be ready to be wrong as well. Mm-hmm. Like, so what is the main diagnosis? I would say try to commit to something in your own mind, even if mm-hmm. you don't put it down. But I would say try to commit to something. Like, what do you think is going on? And that will be a good experience of, you know, being okay being wrong or being okay. And you'll learn from that as well, you know. Mm-hmm. And consider that 50% of psychiatric hospitalizations, there is a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder when you do like a skit or a formal interview. Mm-hmm. It's almost like there's a there's a saying, if you're in the CNL team, it's delirium until proven otherwise. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for delirium, have them draw a clock, have them spell world backwards, have them count mm-hmm. down by 21. If they can draw a clock good, if they can count down from 21 by threes, if they can spell world backwards, it's probably not delirium. So in the CNL team, delirium until proven otherwise, even if they look depressed, Start start by thinking this person might be delirious, mm-hmm. okay? And in the psychiatric hospital, it's borderline personality disorder until proven otherwise. <laughs> so, you know, chronic history of suicidality, history of self-harm, history of suicide attempts, multiple psychiatric hospitalizations, multiple failed medications, chronic, chaotic, interpersonal relationships, a social veneer so they can pull it together and look okay for a little bit. So, maybe with you, they're looking okay, but they've just come out of a lot of chaos. The social veneer, they can pull it together. Their affect, only 5% of the time do they ever feel normal. All the other time, they either feel anxious or depressed or, you know, so it's like affect. And then um, quasi-psychotic symptoms. So quasi-psychotic episodes, it's it's more of a dissociation event. So they can hear things, mm-hmm. they can see things. Like I've had a patient who sees children hanging, mm-hmm. nooses around their necks, stuff like that. It's kind of like mm-hmm. quasi-psychotic episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. So to help in your formulation, the the assessment and, and your plan, it'll be important to be studying throughout your clerkship. You know, you'll have a shelf exam at the end and you'll have step two CK later on. So, so to study and know, you know, what are the diagnostic criteria, especially for the major things that you'll see like major depression or schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, bipolar 1, bipolar 2, you know, as well as many of the the treatments that would go along with each of these will be an important thing for you throughout the clerkship. Uh, You know, in the hospital, using up-to-date a lot, uh, as well as the DSM-5 to know what the diagnostic criteria are and, and what the treatment might be. That's something that I was doing a lot. And then when I came home, I was using online med ed a lot, as well as inside the boards and podcasts 
you can use the psychiatry and psychotherapy podcasts as well to, to help you brush up on things. And then, you know, making sure that you're getting in a, a good number of questions as well will help you to be more comfortable with making those diagnoses and, and knowing what the treatments are. My final thought would be make sure you get enough sleep on this rotation. You know, mm-hmm. this should be a rotation that's not as heavy as some of the other ones. And, you know, make sure you're getting your good eight hours of sleep. And also think about the activities, you know, do some behavioral activation for yourself. So think about the activities that used to give you a sense of meaning and purpose and schedule some of those in in the evenings Mm -hmm. so that you can really have a break and feel juicy for the next day. Mm -hmm. Things that give you a sense of meaning and purpose, maybe exercise, non-screen time and getting out into nature, getting out with friends, getting out to dinner, you know, stuff like that. And, um, you know, one of the things we do in CBT is we schedule those things for patients. So why not schedule those things for ourselves as well during these psychiatry rotations? Not neglect our own self-care, right? Because we can, we can forget about that. We can forget about our own mental health. Right. And maybe that would be my final thing is like, don't be afraid of going to see a therapist. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to this and you're like, you know, I feel like I'm totally burned out and I don't feel like I have a lot of hope or I'm depressed. And, you know, maybe start by seeing a therapist and, you know, ask ask your residents, hey, who do you guys refer patients to, you know, for therapy? Or do the residency therapists in the area, are there any therapists that come more highly recommended than another? And that's really a privilege to know who the good therapists are by asking the, the residents and the attendings. And there's always a couple that in any area that are like the highly respected ones. So, Consider, even if it is for like four visits, go in, go into a therapist, kind of have that experience as a patient. Absolutely. Well, great. These are some really great thoughts. Thank you very much, Dr. David Pewter and the Psychiatry and Psychotherapy podcast. Uh, it's definitely been a great resource for me and something that I would uh, suggest for the rest of you. Dr. Pewter, it's been great having you on. It's, it's been a pleasure. And if anyone has any questions, very approachable on social media, you can just shoot me a DM and I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening. That's all we have for today. We'll be back with another episode for the Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 2 and shelf exams. Please tell your friends. And if you have a moment before this podcast ends, pick up your phone and hit subscribe. And if you're not driving, leave a review of the podcast wherever you're listening now. It helps us get the message out and keep providing you the best free audio resource for board prep and medical school.